Hello, and welcome to Tolkien class session number 10. The circumstances of this class are even stranger than last time. This past week, we've gotten almost three feet of snow in Delaware and the eastern shore of Maryland. Although they handle this pretty well back in New Hampshire, where I'm from, around here it's been an enormous crisis. Our classes at the college were canceled for this whole last week, and the dean informed the faculty that the college is not going to schedule make-up sessions. What I did, therefore, was this. On Friday the 12th, I went into campus and recorded all three lost class sessions in one day. I invited students who were on campus to come and join me for these sessions, on a purely voluntary basis, and many of them did. The atmosphere of these sessions is thus quite informal, as you might imagine. These sessions are also a bit longer than usual. Since I was not restricted by the class schedule to our normal 50 minutes, I went a little longer in order to finish up the material I wanted to cover. This is a cool benefit of this situation. Normally, when I teach the Silmarillion, I end up getting way behind the class schedule. Finishing everything up yesterday will mean that I will actually get time to talk about Baron and Luthien next Monday, and I'm very excited about that. In any case, here is the first of yesterday's triple header. Remember that we are here covering the first seven chapters of the Quintus Silmarillion. So, the primary thing I want to do in today's class is sort out, sort out the framework of things and the names of people uh, and peoples and things. Um, just to make sure that we understand some of the larger categories that we're talking about and some of the larger names that we're discussing. Um, then I want to get into the discussion of particular stories uh, in the next class. Uh, I, I will, for instance, want to spend some time talking about uh, the chapter on Aule and Yuvana, uh, to be talking about, obviously, the story of, of Melkor's fall and chaining and release and of Feanor and the Silmarils, obviously. Um, but that I think we're gonna, I'm going to save till, till, till next time, and then we'll look back when we have the stuff from the second lecture to be talked the, the second, well, the third. Uh, uh, wait. Is, today's the second class on the Silmarillion, right? Right now is? Okay. Anyway, when we have the later stuff, we'll do that. It's a good thing I can keep things straight. Um, so as I said, keeping things straight, that's, that's the primary thing for today. So first, I want to go back a little bit. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to go through the Valaquenta in, in detail, um, but I do want to go over some of the major of the Valar to make sure that we have a clear understanding of them and who they are so that as they're being uh, alluded to and, and as we see them acting, we have a clear sense of who they are and what they're doing. So we know, how many Valar total are they? Do you remember? A bunch. Prayer, yeah. Four. The there. Yeah, that varies. We, yeah. Remember the total? Is it fourteen? Yeah, that's it. Fourteen. Fourteen total. Seven. Seven male. Seven female. Um, now that's not counting Melkor, who doesn't get counted among the Valar. Uh, he is fond of reminding people like Feanor that he is one of the, you know, uh, one of the Valar or above the Valar as he would consider himself. But, uh, but he doesn't count. When we're numbering them, he doesn't count. Um, so there are 14, seven, uh, seven and seven. Now, they, there is a subset of them uh, that Tolkien emphasizes are the great ones. And those are the ones I really want to go through. Uh, the six... Minor Valar, you will almost never see a reference to ever again. Not that they're not interesting and important in their own way, uh, but I want to make sure that we are down with the Aratar, as he calls the, the, the high ones, the, the big eight. So who are the big eight? 
Who is first of the big eight, of course? First of the big any number? Manway, of course. Also called? Sulimo. Sulimo, yes. Manway Sulimo. Lord of the breath of Arda. Which reminds me, we should probably take a step back and make sure that we understand that we can keep straight the names of the planet and everything. Uh, Arda is the biggest, well, okay. The very biggest name that we have is Ea. Remember uh, at the end of the Ainulindale, Iluvatar speaks and says Ea, and so we have Ea, the world that is. Now this is like the cosmos, the whole created universe. Within that, we have the planet Arda. And then we have, of course, the individual continents on Arda. So... Middle Earth is not the whole planet. It is sort of the big planet in the middle. Out on the, out on the, on the west, on the other side of the Great Sea, where the Valar retire to after their first fight with Melkor and the destruction of the Great Lamps, right, is Valinor. And the primary divide within Arda, uh, I mean, as far as these stories are concerned, are between Middle-earth and Valinor. So you know, those, are, those are the two different, two different areas that we're primarily talking about. Now, Beleriand is the portion of Middle-earth that, where, the, where the stories of the First Age take place, uh, with, with Angband, the, uh, the fortress of, of Morgoth up in the north of it, and all of the elven kingdoms... Again, at least the elven kingdoms that we care about uh, downranged around to the south of them. There are still elves across the, mount- across the mountains. We have Arid Luin, the Blue Mountains, that form the eastern boundary of Beleriand. Um, and over there is the rest of Middle-earth that the Lord of the Rings will take place in. Um, almost all of Beleriand... Uh, about 98% of it will sink into the ocean at the end of the first stage. Uh, so the maps of Middle-earth that come in the Lord of the Rings, uh, Beleriand isn't there. You can see the Blue Mountains. The Blue Mountains are way over on the western coast, like the, the, the northwest coast of Middle-earth in the Lord of the Rings maps. It's the remnant of that, of that old mountain range, and there's like a tiny little bit of Beleriand on the other side that didn't sink. Um, but, but most of Beleriand is gone. Um, so anyway, so those just, when we're talking about place names and what's going on, I want to make sure that we keep all of those terms straight. Sometimes people get confused between Arda and Middle-earth especially. So, Manway. What do we know about Manway? What should we remember when we, when we hear about Manway? Tell me some of his, uh, his, his, his important features. Matt? Iluvatar uh, considers him is like... Second in command, even though he's slightly less powerful than Melkor. Yes, he and Melkor were brothers in the mind of Iluvatar, we're told. I mean, so they were almost peers. Melkor was the greatest. So, yeah, Manwe was number two. But yeah, he has been sort of delegated authority over all of Arda. He is, he's called king. Uh, king of king of all of Arda, um, so that he has a, a real authority that has been delegated. And remember what we saw in the Ainulindale, how important this trend of delegation was um, from 
Iluvatar to, to the Einar. So we can see, we've seen already, the, the, the real kind of responsibility and, and authority and freedom that he tends to give his creatures. So the authority of Manway over Arda is, therefore, a very real authority. It's, he's not a kind of a puppet under Arda. Yeah. Yes, the wind and the heavens are the primary thing that he is associated with. Um, and therefore also birds. And what's his favorite art form? Interpretive dance. <laughs> no. <laughs> Poetry. The music of words he loves. Um, yes. Associated with the color blue. His scepter has a sapphire on it. Good old man way. Um, his number one, his primary sort of creature, the, 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 the primary creature he's associated with, eagles. Yes, the eagles are, are his sort of special, special birds, and they're his messengers. He uses, he uses birds in general and eagles in a special uh, as his messengers. Um, the eagles of Manway will often be, I mean, that's sort of a phrase that is often alluded to. Uh, also very high among the great ones is the spouse of Manwe? Varda. Varda. Varda, the kindler. Why is she called the kindler? What did she kindle? She wasn't, she hallowed the lamps. So yeah, she was involved in those initial lamps. She's not the one who's in, who, who makes the, the trees of light in Valinor, of course, but, uh, but the lamps she was involved with. Light in general she's associated with. Um, we're told, in part for this reason, she is the one whom Melkor fears most. Of all of the, of the Valar, she is most terrifying to him. The light of Iluvatar is in her face. A rather remarkable thing to be said. A beyond account of mortals is her beauty. Is there anything that means the similarity between Varda and I cannot doubt that there is, but I don't know it. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, the thoroughness with which Tolkien thought through the languages from which these names are based, um, I have no doubt that, he, that Tolkien could give you a very long explanation of the relationship between those, whether it's accidental or not. Um, some similarities of that kind can be accidental or to some extent, or sort of indirect, um, but I'm not sure what to make of it, I must admit. She gets the name the Kindler, though, when she ignites the stars later on. She is the queen of the stars. Um, and you'll remember the great labor that she undertakes. There are a couple of the Valar whom we see undertake this one great sort of masterwork that they can't do again. Varda's great labor uh, are the stars. And in, in fact, we get the list of the constellations that she puts up in the sky. Um, and the, that is right before the children awake. In fact, it looks like that's, it seems to be almost like a triggering event for the awakening of the elves. They wake up when Varda completes her great work of star kindling. Um, what is her other name? Varda is what she's called in Valinor, on Middle Earth, in Middle Earth, in, in the in the Sindarin tongue, she's called Elbereth. Elbereth. 
And this, of course, is how she is referred to throughout the Lord of the Rings. The elves will sing songs to Elbereth um, that we will hear several times. Uh, and this is Varda that they're singing to. It is to her that all of the peoples in Middle-earth cry out in times of need, um, in part because she is most, uh, most beloved by them, but also for a pragmatic reason as well. When Manwe and Varda are sitting together upon the holy mountain of Tenequetil, uh, Manwe gains what power? See. The ability to see almost infinite distances. Varda gains what power? The ability to hear anything that happens in the world. So there's a certain pragmatism in calling out to the one who can actually hear you. Uh, so that, that actually makes a certain amount of sense. Uh, but of course, it's not just pure pragmatism that drives that particular thing. But, but clearly, uh, it, it's, it's for obvious and appropriate reasons they cry out to her. Okay, who else? Manway, Varda? Ulmo. Ulmo. Who's Ulmo? I alluded to him in the last class. He's, he lives in the water. Yes, he is associated with, with the seas. And not just the seas, but every form, from, 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 from the depths of the seas to the drops of dew, uh, Ulmo is involved. What else is he essentially, primarily associated with? Through, because of his connection with water, what is his other main strength? Can't uh, he like send messages to like the elves? Good. One of the things that's emphasized about him is that he is he is different from most of the other Valar, and that he never forsakes Middle Earth. He always stays in constant touch with him, and and like he doesn't have like Varda the ability to to hear everything that happens in the world. But he receives messages and stays, in, stays, stays up with things in Middle-earth because every spring, every well, every fountain, uh, every drop comes back to him and, and, he, and he therefore learns things and hears things that way. Um, so he is more in touch with what's going on in Middle-earth than any of the other Valar and keeps it, keeps it in mind. The Valar separate themselves from Middle-earth after that first... Uh, you know, unpleasant interaction with Melkor. When he comes in, uh, after the first war, he destroys the lamps. They retreat. They retreat to Valinor, and they, for a time, cease to take much thought for it. We know that some of them go over, uh, and not all of them have forgotten Middle-earth, but uh, and none of them have forgotten it, and, and, and not all of them have abandoned it. But Olmo is the one who especially keeps it in mind, and he is always the friend of, of elves and men. Uh, for this way, it's said. So that's that's a really important aspect about Omo. He is also, compared to the other Valar, a loner. He lives in the depths of the sea by himself. He doesn't live in Valinor, Valinor with everybody else. Uh, and that is unique among the Valar. He is very unusual in that way. He doesn't live entirely by himself. Uh, you know, he has other spirits that are with him. Many of them are, for instance. But he doesn't. He is not sort of part of the group arrangements of the Valar, except in times of great need, when there's a great council, he'll go to Valinor to, to, to speak with them. Yeah. Is he the only one without a spouse? He's not the only one, but he is also unusual in not having a spouse. Uh, there, are, there are a few of them that don't have uh, spouses. Um, but he is, he is one. Um, and that is, seems to be also of a piece with his 
solitude uh, as well. He doesn't, he doesn't have a partner. The other thing he is associated with is music. He is, the, he is the greatest musician of all of them and understands music better than any. And this is why the music of water is so profound. And associated with this also, of course, is the yearning for the sea, which we see coming up, we'll see references to, especially in the elves. Um, but in all people, we'll talk about the sea longing. Um, and Olmo and the music of the sea uh, is is at the heart of that. His horns, the Ulumuri, I love the name of his horns. Uh, his horns are such that when once anyone hears the call of his horns, they can never forget it. And the, the, the desire for the sea never again leaves their heart. And we'll see uh, in the stories, both in the Silmarillion and in the Lord of the Rings, this returning idea that there are people who will just get drawn to the sea and not be able to get it out of their minds and not be able to get the desire of it. Um, out of their hearts. So that's Olmo. Who else? I'm really not sure to pronounce it. Aule? Aule, yes. A-U is generally pronounced owl. Just like Middle English. And uh, and almost all of these names, terminal E's, are are almost always pronounced. It's, it's, It's very rare for a terminal E in any in any elven word, not to be pronounced. Um, Aule, who's he? Associated with the earth. Yes, yes, with the earth. Um, And therefore also with? Craftsmanship. Yes, craftsmanship. He is the smith god, and and he, his craftsmanship is defined pretty broadly, right? I mean, on the one hand, he is the shaper of the mountains and the, 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 the continents and land masses of Arda. Uh, he also is the smith who makes small fine work and not just metalsmithing and masonry, right? But even things like embroidery are crafts, are his crafts. And connected with these other kinds of, these other sort of physical kinds of craftsmanship is also the making of writing. He is associated with languages, and especially with written languages and written characters. Um, that's a, sort of a subset of the kind of craftsmanship uh, uh, that, that he's associated with. And that's, I think, a really interesting kind of thing. Tolkien is very clear in separating written language from spoken language. Um, he talks about the sort of the natural development of the spoken languages. And of course, there are some moments when artificial restrictions are placed upon the languages which affect their spread and development. Um, but written language is a totally different thing. And, um, and as, he, as we hear, you know, I'm forgetting if that was in the reading for this session or the next session, um, when writing is invented in Middle-earth while the the other elves are over in Valinor before the Noldor return. Um, when writing is invented, most of the Sindar don't really care about it. They don't pay any attention to it. They're like, oh, look, we can write down our language. Now, well, that's kind of interesting, but we're not... The dwarves love it, but the, but the elves uh, are kind of plus minus on the whole writing things down thing, which, of course, makes a certain degree of sense. I mean, if you're immortal you can just remember stuff and uh, you don't need written records of what has happened in the past because most of the people around you will just remember it. Um, 
So as, as this is, it's only when things begin to pass away that, that people want to write things down. Um, anyway, uh, so Aule is associated with all, with all of those things. Dwarf. Yes, dwarf crafting. Uh, and we'll come to the, his uh, dwarf's, dwarf craftsmanship. It is uh, one of my favorite stories from the Quintus O'Marillion, the story of, of, of Aule and Yavanna and the, the making of the dwarves. Um, <laughs> I love the fact that the kind of the uh, word that Tolkien uses to describe them later on, the unloveliness of the dwarves uh, is, is due to the fact that when Aule made them, he only had a kind of like rough working idea of what the children of Iluvatar were supposed to look like. So, uh, you know, it's kind of his approximation uh, of the end result, which was kind of, eh, you know, sort of, sort of not. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's really kind of a wonderful touch. Who is Aule's spouse? Ivana. And she has another name as well, uh, which she is occasionally known as uh, Kementari. Ivana, who is she? She, um, she's the one who grows everything. Yes, yes. She is responsible for all living and growing things. Um, equally, animals, plants, anything that lives and grows, out, uh, Yavanna is, is the source of and ruler of. When you look at the couplings in the Valar, you can see some interesting relationships that Tolkien is suggesting. Um, Manway and Varda make a certain amount of sense, right? Uh, he is the heavens and the winds, and she is the light and the stars. Uh, Aule and Yavanna make for a really interesting pairing. Both of them are, in a sense, craftsmen. Both of them are makers, though in very different senses, right? One of them work, and it's not just a question of one of them working with organic materials and the other with inorganic materials, right? I mean, there's there's a fundamentally different relationship between them and their craftsmanship. Both love their, their creatures, their things, right? But Yavanna doesn't, doesn't look at the trees and the plants and the animals in quite the same way that Aule looks at something that he has carved or something that he has uh, formed, right? Um, Yavanna's creatures are things which have life, in themselves. And she helps to bring them to their own life. It's a, as it, it's a, it's a very interesting pairing. She, of course, is also one of the ones who, has, who does not abandon Middle-earth because there are lots of growing things there. Um, and she puts them at one point into the sleep. There's the reference to the sleep of Yavanna, right? Until the, until the moon and the sun arise, much lies dormant in Middle-earth so that it's not going to just you know, die in the in the in the post destruction of the lamps, darkness of Middle Earth, um, and get wrecked by Melkor. Okay, so we've got the first five. Who are the other three of the eight top ones? Well, not both of them. One of them. Mandos. Yes, Mandos. Mandos. 
Uh, Mandos is not his actual name. It's how he's referred to most of the time, but it's actually the name of the place that he lives. Right, the halls of Mandos. What happens in the halls of Mandos? Dump storage. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of containment unit. Yeah, it's uh, the the houses of waiting are there. Right, that's it's where the souls of the dead go. Um, that's what the halls of Mandos are. Not a lot of detailed information is forthcoming about the Halls of Mandos. In fact, we're given at times some different versions and speculations and theories about what's there. Um, that is, is there a place set apart for the dwarves in the Halls of Mandos? That's one theory. Um, that they, you know, that some say that the dwarves, when they die, just like turn back into the stone from which they were formed. And the, but the dwarves don't believe that. They believe they they have chambers set apart where they wait, and then they will also sort of come back in the general resurrection at the end of time and will help Aule in the forming of, of the new world. Um, but, but we don't know. I mean, that question is never, is never given. Remember, as I said before, the Silmarillion throughout is told from the Elvish perspective. The things that the elves don't know aren't here or are just speculated about. So there are some things which, uh, for which there are, there are no definitive answers. Um, and exactly how the, how the halls of Mandos are structured and what goes on there is one of the things which we are never given enough detail about. What's his, well, enough detail to satisfy the questions that many people would have about it anyway. Um, what is the name of, of Mandos, his actual personal name? Namo. Namo, good, good. Namo, and his brother is Irmo, uh, though... Uh, what, what name is his brother normally known by? Lorian. Yeah, Lorian. Uh, the, the, the Lorian that we meet in the Lord of the Rings is modeled after and reminiscent of. It's a, it's a tribute to Lorian in Valinor. Um, but Lorian or Irmo is not one of, the, one of the big eight, but Mandos is. So apart from maintaining the halls of the, of, of, of the dead, what is Mandos known for? What's his job? He's like uh, the judge of the lawmakers. Yeah, he's he's the doomsman of the Valar. We are told, which means, and I, I love that word, uh, doom. I should I would mention in passing is a really interesting word in Tolkien's fiction. Um, the word doom has two different senses. The it, one of which it's lost pretty much, uh, in, in modern usage. Um, it had the usage that it retains, that is the sense of uh, imminent, horrible things occurring. Uh, but the word doom also meant, in fact, really its primary meaning was judgment. Um, there's a, the, the, there's a the, the, the verb form of it is to deem, um, there's a moment uh, in the Council of Elrond when Elrond says, that is the doom that we must deem, right? I mean, that's, that's uh, and, or, and also uh, there's the moment in the uh, two towers when Faramir is sitting in judgment over Gollum, um, and he says, hear my doom. Uh, and now it's uncertain whether or not Gollum is going to have his doom pronounced, but the doom that Faramir... And so it turns out that the doom that Faramir deems uh, is a merciful doom. Uh, and you know, so it's, it's, that's 
how that, what that word means. He is a judge. So as the doomsman of the Valar, it doesn't mean that Mandos is in charge of doom in the modern sense, though sometimes his judgments kind of feel like that, but, but judgment. And also prophecy. Uh, Mandos foretells things. He has a kind of vision which is different from Manway's vision. Um, and he is, one of the things that I love about Mandos is that he'll like pop up with interjections at, 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 at random points, usually that other people don't understand, as for instance, um, oh wait, that wasn't in today's reading. Ah, well, anyway, uh, when Fanor is complaining and saying, I will be the first to be slain in all of the, in all, in all of the blessed realm, and Mandos pipes up and says, not the first, because right? he alone knows that uh, it turns out Finway has already been killed, um, though the news of that hasn't reached, and no, no one even among the Valar else appears to know that. So uh, he has this kind of prophetic vision, um, but he also has a vision of the past. He forgets nothing, we are told. Um, and he's the only one of whom that is said. He never forgets. Um, so he has this absolute retention of the past and this glimpse into the future. And these are the reasons why he is the doomsman. When, when, when a judgment is to be, is to be given, Manway doesn't always have the final word. He will often turn to Mandos and say, well, Mandos, what do you say? And then when Mandos declares his doom, you know, Manway is like, all right, there it is. <laughs> you know, let's, uh, let's, let's, uh, let's do that. Um, so... Mendos, uh, in addition to being associated with death, uh, he is uh, strongly associated with, with, with prophecy and judgment. Two more. Orame? Yes, Orame. Who is he? Or Orome, probably. Stress, I think, should be on the second syllable. Orome is the hunter, the great hunter. He has his mighty horse, Nahar. And he also goes to Middle-earth for sport. What does he hunt? Deer. He doesn't, well, he, he, his, his uh, sister pursues deer on foot. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Orome hunts monsters and fell beasts. He is one of the most uh, fearsome of the Valar from a military standpoint. Great in anger. Terrible in anger, yeah. Tolkas. Tolkas, he, he, he's not one of the big eight. He is the, the, the strongest uh, and the most powerful uh, of them. And he's the one who, he, he comes late uh, you know, in the first war with Melkor, he comes late, and he's the one who overcomes Melkor, and Melkor is kind of scared of him. Um, the difference between Tolkas and Orome, um, like they're, they're another really fascinating pair. Tolkas is stronger, but he's less scary because he's just a more jovial guy. Right? I mean, as he's fighting, he's laughing. He laughs all the time. Um, he just has a grand old time, and he's a wrestler. You know, he wars naked and his weapons are his hands and he just, you know, he he just will take Morgoth down and does so several times. Uh, Orome fights with weapons and is much more intimidating because he's actually ticked off when he fights, Uh, unlike Tolkas, who's sort of having a roaring good time the entire time. Tolkas is also not very smart. 
uh, I, I love the phrase that Tolkien uses. He is of no avail as a counselor. <laughs> it's a very polite way of saying not the sharpest tool in the shed. But uh, anyway, he's, he's, he's but, a, but, a, but a steady friend, right? He, he, is, he is faithful. He's a great guy. Uh, but, uh, it's, and you can see he, he, his interjections are also sometimes kind of a, Kind of interesting, and the councils of the Valar is he, he rarely has the best ideas and is pretty rash. So he's not one of the top eight, though. Orome is. One more? Really wanted to be Nienna, though. It is. It is, yes. Nienna. Nienna, the oddest and most unexpected of the Valar. Uh, I. Warned last time to try not to be connecting the Valar with gods of other pantheons. Um, but uh, I don't have to give you that warning with Nienna, because you're not going to find anybody quite like her in other pantheons. What, is, what does she do? She mourns all of the hurt that Melkor has done to creation. Yes, she is the Valar in charge of crying. <laughs> she weeps all the time, and that's... And she's one of the big ones. She's one of the big eight because of the, because of the weeping. Her, 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 her song back in the great music was turned to lamentation early on. Um, she is not explicitly connected with the third theme of Iluvatar, though it's hard not to connect her to that theme. Uh, as we were told, we're told about the sadness of that theme and the profound beauty that comes from its sadness. And um, Nienna seems to be... Uh, that's, that's what she does. Both the sadness and the beauty. Um, what is the effect of her mourning? What does she bring about? If you hang out with Nienna, what's going to happen to you? She teaches you pity. Pity and wisdom. Yeah, exactly. She turns sorrow to wisdom and brings strength to those who are suffering. Where does she live? Mandos. Way, like in the western suburbs of Mandos. Her, 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 her halls look outside the world. She's got like a, you know, like a, a, a window onto the, you know, past the edge of Ea, um, out into the void. We will talk at some point, um, though not as much as I would like to get a chance to do, about the remarkable position of tragedy and sorrow in Tolkien's writings. Um, Bilbo talks at the end of the, uh, in the Fellowship of the Ring, and we can see it in, in The Hobbit, when, when he's talking to Frodo about the book that Frodo's going to write of his adventures. Uh, Bilbo espouses the idea that books ought to have good endings. He's like, no, you know, you know, make sure your book has a happy ending. All books should have happy endings. Um, and on the one hand, Tolkien seems to have agreed with that. And we saw uh, in On Fairy Stories when he's talking about eucatastrophe, and he says, you know, a true fairy story has to have that kind of happy ending, or it's not really a true fairy story. But we will see again and again, and especially through the Silmarillion, and I hope it doesn't wear you down uh, by a couple weeks from now, the unrelenting sorrow and tragedy of these stories, things that, you know, the experience that most have when reading through the Silmarillion is, gosh, I thought it couldn't get worse anymore, and it just got more <laughs> worse. Uh, that's going to happen again. It's merciless. Don't forget Nana. 
Uh, Nianna is at the heart of what's going on in Middle-earth. There is sorrow woven into the, 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 the mesh of creation. Um, and she is the one who oversees that. And remember the effect of that. Um, there are some who read Tolkien's works and draw the conclusion like, gosh, this guy was really depressed. You know, this is, you know, his work is so depressing and everything's always so sad, man. It's, but I think that that's actually a misunderstanding. Um, he, well, we'll see what happens as we go along. Um, this is actually what Liz Bateman did her thesis on last year, uh, the tragic stories and the effect of tragic en- endings of stories. And it's, uh, it's a really interesting question. I think it's, to me, it's one of the things which um, is most remarkable and most unusual about, about Tolkien's fiction. There are people who like happy endings where almost, you know, maybe, maybe a character will die or something. But, you know, by and large, the ending is still happy and cheerful. And there are some other writers who seem to love to kill everybody off and, like, you know, the, 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 you, know you feel like opening your veins at the end of the book. Tolkien doesn't do either one of them. Um, he really steer, steers equally clear of both of those, uh, of both of those kinds of tendencies. And, and, but it's not even steering clear of both. It's like he does both at once. And by doing both at once, uh, creates an effect which I think is really uh, remarkable and really profound. But anyway, Nienna, I'm a big fan. Um, the others, the, the, the Maiar, who are the, the, the primary Maiar we get introduced to? We've got the two, the two Maiar who, who, uh, who hang out with Olmo. Ose. Yes. Ose and Uinin. Ose and Uinin. And they are, uh, they are responsible for basically the coastal waters. They are really important because they're the, the ones that you actually are sort of negotiating with when you're trying to sail a ship. Ase and Uinen are the ones who uh, are responsible for things like tides, storms at sea, all that kind of thing. Of course, we will meet Melian, who becomes a central player in the history of Beleriand as she joins it in a way which is quite unlike any other of the Maiar that we meet, at least in the first age. And we also get a brief introduction. We should give a uh, brief recognition to one who will play no part in the Silmarillion, but a large part later on, O'Loran. Meyer, who hung out with Nienna a lot and learned from her. Likes to go among elves and men and bring them comfort. To share his wisdom do the, that Nienna-like thing of taking sorrow and transforming it into strength and wisdom. Who is he? Anybody know? Under what name we will meet him later on? I really think it's Gandalf. It is. It's Gandalf. Aloran is Gandalf. He mentions this at one point uh, when uh, Frodo is recalling to Faramir all of Gandalf's different names. Uh, he recalls Gandalf saying that he, his name in the Forgotten West uh, in his early days was Aloran. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's Gandalf. Uh, so remember Nienna, uh, when we get to Gandalf in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, uh, she is the one that he primarily 
hung out with and sort of studied with uh, in Valinor, in, in as Ase and Uinen are associated with Olmo. Uh, so, so Aloran, so Gandalf, is associated with Nienna. Of the enemies, um, that is, of course, Melkor, a.k.a. Morgoth, uh, is the only of the, you know, the Valar stature who is, who is among them. Uh, but there are several Maiar, most notably, of course, Sauron, who is, you know, the chief henchman of Melkor. Of course, quite famously, he's going to set up on his own later on, but, uh, but for now, we will meet him as the chief henchman of Morgoth. And who else? The Balrogs. The Balrogs, yes. Spirits of fire, with powers in shadow and fear. Are the, are, I, I'm just curious, are the Balrogs technically Maya? Yes. All of these, see, now, the, the boundaries get a little bit complicated, especially with evil creatures. Um, in the big picture, there are two, Tolkien only describes two orders of creature, right? Well, you've got Iluvatar. He doesn't count. He's not a creature. Um, you've got the Ainur, the spirits, in the, you know, and depending on their stature, you know, on how big they are, they're Valar, they're called Valar or Maiar when they enter into, Ar- when they enter into Arda. So you've got the Ainur and the children of Iluvatar, right? Um, therefore, logically, every sentient being must be one or the other of those things. Now, some creatures get kind of, to adopt a biblical uh, phrase, grafted in to the children, right? Like the dwarves, most, you know, most prominently, or at least first here. Uh, Iluvatar, sort of, they, they, they're like the stepchildren of Iluvatar. He, he, he accepts them in but they're not part of his initial plan. You know, the children of Iluvatar are... Who? Men and elves. Men and elves. Men and elves, who are elves and men. Right? Elves are the firstborn, and men are the aftercomers, right? But they are the two, the two groups, the two species of the children of Iluvatar. There are others who seem to become part of that group, like the dwarves, right? The dwarves, you know, he, he accepts them as children. And the hobbits wander in <laughs> Yeah, the hobbits are never explained. Uh, the origin of hobbits, the, the, the original origin of hobbits is never explained. There does not seem to be any sort of separate act of creation like, the, like with the dwarves, um, with the hobbits. Um, they appear to be derived by some complicated process, which I don't know, from men. Um, I don't think they are... Well, I mean, Tolkien wouldn't... wouldn't uh, wouldn't speak in terms of genetics, but I'm thinking, you know, you do a DNA analysis of hobbits and men, and, and, and you're going to come up uh, pretty, pretty, pretty much the same. Um, they're definitely not elves. Um, they share, and the primary thing is they, they share the same framework as humans. In fact, everything except height they share with humans. Most notably, for instance, death. I mean, that's a big determinant. I mean, that's like the big difference, right, between elves and between elves and men. Um, there are other differences which are sort of associated with that. Um, but well, since I'm on the subject, let's talk about that. 
What is death? How do we understand death? How does he talk about death, about human death? Remember, this is an elven document. They don't really understand it. And so we will never get a really detailed theology about this because the elves themselves are mystified by it. The elves almost seem to see it as a blessing. They're, I'm not gonna, I don't want to say jealous, but they seem, some of them seem to long for it. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's a pretty sweet deal. It's uh, kind of understandable that both species of the children of Iluvatar are kind of a little bit jealous of the other. All right. Now, it's not that the elves sit around pining, wishing that they could die all the time, only sometimes. Um, and and when, when Tolkien talks about this, he says, you know, as the centuries wear on, some, of the, some even of the powers might envy men. Um, why? What's to envy about it? Well, supposedly, um, all the creatures that die will eventually come back for the second song of Illuminar, and the elves don't know what's going to happen to them around that point. Yeah, they, there are a couple references to what appears to be a general resurrection at the end of time. And so it, it does, you know, both of the, uh, of the groups of the children are going to take part in that, in that second music with the Ainur. So, yeah, clearly the men are coming back at some point. Um, the life of the elves is bound to Arda which has pluses and minuses, right? On the one hand, it's a plus because their lives are, are coextensive with the life of Arda itself. They cannot be extinguished as individuals, as sentient beings, um, while the life of Arda continues. So until the world passes away and there is made a new heaven and a new earth, at the end of time, the elves are going to continue. Now, that is, their spirits are going to continue. Their physical bodies are perishable, right? They have, they're very strong. They can't get diseases, but they can be killed. And they can waste in grief as well. But when that happens, their spirits go to Mandos and continue to hang out there until the end of creation. Um, so he does suggest that perhaps, you know, 10,000 centuries might become a weariness, uh, to people, and the idea of escaping, uh, even to we know not whither, which is how they always talk about the death of men. Um, the elves have no idea where men go or what happens to men when they die. Um, but still, the idea of actually being able to escape and not having to linger and stay. Uh, for all the rest of the history of, the, of, of, of Arda might eventually be attractive, we're told. But of course, the idea of immortality, or at least functional immortality, within the span of the world is always very attractive to humans who usually are not especially keen on leaving to go we know not whither. Um, and that, of course, we'll see uh, on lots of occasions. So uh, both of them can in one sense kind of envy the fate of the other, though the, the bulk of the envy that we will see happening will be on the human side, envying the immortality of the elves, um, rather than, we won't see that many elves pining away for mortality, but he does sort of suggest that that's, you know, it's kind of on the table. Um, what is death called? What does he call death? How does he characterize it? 
you know, hour and a half class sessions. Um, let me just speed up and cover a couple of things. I do want to talk about the different families of the of the Eldar of the elves to make sure that we can kind of keep those terms straight and make sure that we're understanding the significance of them. Um, oh wait, one thing I forgot to mention. Uh, thinking of the children of Iluvatar are the orcs. What's the story of the orcs that we get here, Mac? The uh, elves that Sauron captures, he tortures and imprisons, and eventually they become the orcs. Yes, he twists and perverts them with his own power uh, and makes them into orcs. There's, uh, this is sort of held to be proven by the fact that they breed. Right? As Iluvatar told to Aule, the Valar have as a gift from Iluvatar only their own being. They can't make other sentient things that are different from there. That's why, you know, when, when you know, Iluvatar tells Aule, these dwarves that you made, they're just going to be... Automatons. I mean, they'll, they'll just, you can move them around with your mind, they'll obey you, but they can never have their own thoughts separate from yours. The same is true of Melkor. He couldn't make a new race. He, he can't really create. He can only make. And so therefore, the fact that the orcs are clearly a species like the children, um, that they do have separate being from him, and they do breed on their own and multiply like the children of Iluvatar do, this shows that there's there's something going on there. And so, yes, they, uh, the, the story in the Silmarillion, there are other places in Tolkien's writings he, he sort of tinkered with the origin of the orcs uh, several times. But th- this is sort of the mainstream one, um, the, the story that gets put in the published Silmarillion. So, okay, so briefly, the, the families of the elves. And then we will end this session here. Um, the elves that first are called the Quindy. That's, that's what they call themselves which just means people who have language. Right, they're, the only, they're the only creatures that they meet in the world who actually speak. You know, they've got the plants and animals, which are all very nice, but they don't actually talk. Uh, so, so they call themselves the Quendi. Now, the first division of the Quendi comes when? Who finds them? Orome. Orome. Orome, minding his own business, comes across... The elves by the lake, by the shores of the lake of Quivienen, where they have awoken and lived for goodness knows how long. The time spans in the first age are kind of indefinite. Could be thousands of years, could be 10,000 years, could be hundreds of years. Um, when we return to Beleriand and we're involved in the wars with Morgoth, we get some more rigid chronology. But these opening acts could have lasted 100,000 years. We have no idea. Uh, but anyway, there they are. And Orome, after a major council of the Valar, decides that they're going to issue an invitation, right? They want to bring the elves, to, to import the elves to Valinor so they can live with them and, and, uh, and protect them, and, and all is going to be well. So the first division comes when? Orome says, come over. And what happens? Uh, they come over in separate groups. Yes. Even before that, some of them decide to come and some of them don't. Right? There are some of them who are like, no thanks, man. We're totally freaked out uh, by you. Uh, we don't want any, you know, we think that, like, you know, I don't know, they think like Arome is some kind of con artist or something, and they're like, no thanks. So those are the Avari, which means the unwilling. They never go take the first step on purpose towards Valinor, uh, and they rarely come into the story ever again. Those who do come are called from then on the Eldar. 
children of the stars. Okay, so we have the Eldar, and they are divided into three groups, which each has their own king. We have the Vanyar. Remember their king? Who is high king over all of the elves? Close. Ingwe. Then we have the Noldor and their king. Finwe. Now these two groups stay together. They're the ones that go straight across without wasting much time, cross right away over into Valinor, never break up and splinter off. The Vanyar and the Noldor. The Noldor, of course, are going to be the primary focus of the story from now on. They are also, the English version of their name, are gnomes. Uh, and in his original drafts, he called them the gnomes most of the time. The word gnomes, here he is not referring to small subterranean creatures that tunnel around, uh, and certainly not that get like spun around and tossed over hedges. Uh, <laughs> Gnomes, the word means knowledge or wisdom. Um, so they're called gnomes because they're the wise ones. Uh, the men name them this uh, because they are so impressed by their, by their greatness and wisdom. Totally unrelated to other gnomes. Um, <laughs> the third family, the third group is the largest, the Teleri. So large that they get two rulers. Elway and Olway. However, a funny thing happens to Elway on his way to Valinor. Right? Walking through the forest one day, minding his own business, he comes across the devastatingly attractive Melian the Maiar, singing with her nightingales about her, and becomes enchanted, in the classic sense, and enters this altered state of blissful stasis for years and years uh, before he wakes up and wanders back out of the woods again and stays in Middle-earth. And of course, his name is changed to Thingol. Olway is his brother, and he's the one who takes all the Teleri that go across to Valinor eventually. Um, and he's the one who is ruling the Teleri on the shores of Valinor uh, later on. Now, the Teleri splinter into different groups along the way. There are some of them that branch off right away. I mean, they get just a part of the way over, and before, the, you know, they're going to cross the Misty Mountains, and some of them are like, all right, now that's it, we're done. We're just going to stay over here uh, in the part of Middle-earth that we will meet elves. Like, you know, the part of Middle-earth where Mirkwood is and where Lothlorien will be, um, they just stay there. These are the Nandor, the green elves. Some of them, so, so the Teleri are on the move, the Nandor stay. Most of the Teleri cross over the Misty Mountains uh, and keep going. They get into Beleriand, most of the rest of the Teleri. But of course they've missed the boat. Well, not the boat, the island, right? Omo has uprooted this island and taken the Vanyar and the Noldor to Valinor already. So they've missed the island and they're there on the shores and uh, you know, and they're all like, you know, the Noldor are like, gosh, we really miss the Teleri. And Teleri are like, gosh, we actually, we kind of thought we were going to go to Valinor, actually. And so they're like, okay. So they, they teach them to sail across, right? They teach them shipbuilding. Um, but some of the Teleri love Ossay and love Middle-earth, and so they decide to stay 
uh, on the shores of Beleriand. Um, so you've got the shipwrights. And here, this is uh, most famously Curtin the shipwright. The Philothrim, sorry, is their name. Let's see. It's spelled with a D-H. I'm forgetting. Yes. D-H is a voiced th sound. So that's Philothrim. Is how that's pronounced. The Philothrim, uh, and the Lord of them is Kurt in the shipwright. This is the dude who is still hanging out on the coast of Middle-earth, shipping folks over at the end of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, he's, uh, he's been around a long, long time. He's even older than Goadriel. He is, with the possible exception of Treebeard, the oldest, uh, the oldest person you will meet in the Lord of the Rings. Not that you meet him very much, but anyway, he's there. So they are related to the Teleri, but they also don't go over. The name that's given to, and then a bunch of them stay to look, you know, and they're like beating the bushes looking for Elway because he like wandered off and they don't know where he is, right? So all of the, all of the groups collectively of the Teleri who don't go over to Valinor are, are, are called the Sindar. And Thingol, Elway, becomes their king. So the ones that are still called the Teleri primarily are the ones who actually go to Valinor. So that group that actually makes it to Valinor and live in their wonderfully named capital of Alqualande uh, are the, still called the Teleri. This is perfectly clear now? What's the Vanyar's deal? The Vanyar are, for the purposes of these stories, by far the most uninteresting branch of the elves in that they never do almost anything uh, interesting like... Did they just go to- yeah, they just like went straight to Valinor, stay there happily, never rebel. Um, they, they live... Uh, they started off living with the Noldor in their city of Tyrion, but then they they move and they they build their own cities on the on the on the slopes of the Holy Mountain. Chaniquetel, they're the ones that are most precious to Manwë, so they're just like hanging out with Manwë and Varda, and um, you know are really great. Uh, and the highest of all the high el- of of all of the elves, the highest and greatest, Ingwë, High King of all Elvendom. Uh, on the planet, but they, they don't actually do much and don't come into these stories very much. The primary ones, of course, who will come into the stories are the Noldor and the, the ones of the Teleri who stay in Middle-earth. Of course, when we go back to Beleriand, where we will spend the majority of the Silmarillion, those are going to be the, the, the cast of characters, the Sindar and the Noldor, uh, over there. What about the Abari? Yeah. Yeah. They're like roaming around somewhere. Um, and they're just not sure how many of them there are. And they're way, way off to the east, largely. I mean, some of them might wander around. Um, but yeah, we don't, we, don't, we don't care about them anymore. Now, the one other term, which is an important one, especially because it's linked to an important concept, is the division between what are called the Calaquendi and the Moraquendi. Now, as you can see, it's derived from, from Quendi, the name that they gave themselves originally. All elves fall into one of these two categories, the Calaquendi and the Moraquendi. The difference between them, you remember the difference between the Calaquendi and the Moraquendi? 
said the light elves the ones that have seen Valinor and the dark elves the ones that have Exactly. All elves fall into one of these two categories. Either you have been to Valinor while the trees were in bloom and seen the light of the trees in Valinor or not. If not, you're a Morquendi. If so, you're a Calaquendi. What's the difference between them? I mean, how can you tell a Calaquendi from a Morquendi? They carry the light of Valinor. Yeah, the, the Calaquendi are greater, stronger, brighter, more beautiful, more wise. I, it's just like... It's a complete upgrade from the Moriquendi. Um, and this is a, an important pattern that we see not just in the elves, but throughout the children of Iluvatar. When you join yourself with, hang out with those that are greater and mightier than you, you get pulled up by them. The, the, the elves who actually did live in Valinor with the Valar and under the light of the trees, when they come back, to Middle Earth, they're just, they're astounding to everybody else. I mean, they've, they, 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 they are way stronger and better uh, than, than the Moriquendi. They have the light of Valinor, as you say, still shines in their faces. Um, the orcs have been in the process of conquering Beleriand right before they return. But when the Calaquendi return, they're going to rip through the orcs like without resistance. The orcs can't, can't, can't stand at all before the Calaquendi. Um, and as I say, this is a general trend that we will see. We will see the same thing. Uh, men who live with the elves and serve under the elves are going to become greater and mightier than the, the men who don't. We may perhaps even see it among hobbits. That is, it's not only in physical height that some of the members of the Fellowship of the Ring return to the Shire greater in stature than everybody else. Um, it is interesting, of course, in the case of Merry and Pippin, this will be physically reflected in their actual heights. They come back taller, um, but all of them come back greater because of the time that they have spent among the great and the high. Um, just like the, just like the, the Edain, the three kindred of the men, just like the Calaquendi among the elves. Um, yeah, yeah. So, none of the Teleri made it out of the Middle Earth, right? They all like, settled down in different places? No, a subset of them did go. Okay. Yes. For, for the most part, none of the Teleri are Calaquendi. They are. The ones that go over are. Olway okay. leads them. Okay. So, Olway and a subset of them are over there. They're Calaquendi. And they come back? No. Okay. They don't. They stay over there. Uh, they're the ones we actually call to Lair. Yes, they're the ones that, are, that will be... You know, a couple times, Thingol will refer to himself as Teleri, but, but the Teleri, by and large, are those ones... Who, so there are all three of those kindreds in Valinor. Okay. The, the Vanyar, the Noldor, and the, and the Teleri. Um, but a big bunch of them stay in Middle-earth, the Sindar, ruled by Thingol. Now, Thingol is unique among the Sindar because he alone... Among the rest of these Moriquendi, he himself is Calaquendi. Because at the very beginning, of course you may recall, Orome takes the three ambassadors, the three kings of the three kingdoms, over to, the, over to Valinor to scope out the place, and then they come back and they're like, dude, actually, that was really sweet over there in Valinor. You should totally come. Let's go. Right? Um, and Elway was one of those. So although he doesn't make it back over there, he still was there. 
So he alone of all of the elves that are, have remained in Middle-earth still technically is Calaquendi, and of course he's married to Melian. And so the same kind of upgrading or promotion that happens when the elves dwell with the Valar happens in Doriath. The elves of Doriath, Thingol and Melian's kingdom, are a little greater than the other Sindar. Because, both because of Elwe, because they're, you know, their king is Calaquendi, and also because, you know, Melian, they have one of the, one of the Ainur with them, uh, ruling over them at all times. So Doriath is kind of specially blessed in that way. Other questions? Other clarifications I can make, Mac? Uh, through most of uh, Tolkien's work, he ties physical stature and social stature together. Yeah. What does that mean for the dwarves? Well, it seems to be... The dwarves are in some ways a little bit of an exception to that. Um, hobbits are not an exception to that. Hobbits are lesser than men. Uh, I mean, they're, they're, they're very short, and they, they're lesser in stature. It's not to say that they're like morally inferior, as we'll see in The Lord of the Rings. They're, in general, morally superior to men, um, or at least that's how the description of their culture sounds. Um, but in that sort of stature, they, they are lesser than men. Um, and certainly than people like the Numenorians, who are exceptionally, who are the tallest of all of the humans, of course, because they're the greatest of all the humans. Um, the dwarves are different because of their origins. Uh, you know, when Aule makes them, again, he, uh, he has only a, a, a working sketch of what they're supposed to look like and makes them shorter. But why are they shorter? Why do the dwarves have the stature that they have? Do you remember? Is it part of the whole sturdiness against Melkor? Yeah, I mean, he... he designed them to be tough to endure um, and so it seems to be the whole stature of the dwarves the whole physical makeup of the dwarves uh, seems to be sort of derivative of that desire to make them resistant and tough and enduring um, and so you know height not a priority <laughs> among among the dwarves I mean in that kind of thing the the the, the trend with uh, physical stature and sort of, I don't know what the what word to use. The word spiritual doesn't is not doesn't seem exactly right, but it's the best I can think of to describe this other this sort of stature of being that uh, that some have, you know, that, that that everyone has and some have more of than others, um, as the Calaquendi do over the Moraquendi and the elves in general over the men. Um, it's a trend. It's not a rule, uh, and it's not. It's certainly not just a, an equivalency, like all great ones are always taller than, uh, than people who are less great. You know, every Calaquendi is taller than every Moraquendi and that sort of thing. I mean, that's, that's, that, that sort of rule wouldn't really work. But it is, it is kind of a trend. It does seem to be a way in which Tolkien does often, so it uses it as a kind of a shorthand to point to this other kind of stature. Um, I mean, again, it's sort of natural that when we meet... Amir and the Rohirrim in the two towers. Amir is the tallest of all of of all of his men. Um, you know, it's it's a way that Tolkien signals, like, pay attention to this guy. This guy is this guy is something here. Yeah. I mean, in my mind, I kind of equate stature with honor or try to be more uh, valor. Valar. 
that hint at the word balance? That I doubt. Um, I doubt that the comp- the the creation of the uh, the Elvish languages and therefore names is pretty thorough, and there are some clear examples of places where the Elvish words or names sound like English words but are clearly unrelated to them. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, those are two excellent examples. Of course, that the, the hill, you know, that. Tyrian upon tuna. Or I want to say tuna because it doesn't sound like tuna, but it's clearly supposed to be pronounced tuna. Uh, Tyrian upon tuna. I mean, it always just kind of sounds like tuna upon rye, but it's... And there, I think, honestly, I believe that Tolkien was so... Uh, so submerged in the linguistics of his own languages that he just it didn't even occur to him. Um, I actually have a uh, a piece of indirect evidence that I think supports uh, this this reading, uh, and it's actually from a book by C.S. Lewis. Um, C.S. Lewis's space trilogy, uh, the main character of that of the trilogy, Ransom, um, is loosely based upon Tolkien. He's a, a, philolog- a, a philologist, and there's this one moment in Paralandra uh, where. I, the character, whose last name is Ransom, as I said, is having this conversation with a voice, um, and the voice makes a pun on the name, and the voice says to him, for my name also is Ransom. And of course, that voice is, uh, is Jesus and, and is referring to the, to, the, to the crucifixion and everything, but the, when Lewis is describing that, the character of Ransom has this sudden realization. He's a professional philologist. I mean, it's, it's what he does. And it's like at that moment for the first time, it occurred to him, oh, yeah, my last name is an English word, isn't it? Because, of course, as a philologist, when he heard his own name, whenever he thought about his own name, he was so aware of the way that, like, you know, that, 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 that Ransom comes from, uh, you know, the son of this, you know, that he, he knew that the, the, the words that his name come from and knew that it was only a kind of fluke. Uh, you know, a mere pun. It's not actually connected to the word rant, the English word ransom at all. So he never even thought of it until that moment when his attention is drawn to it. Uh, and I kind of, I kind of think that the state of mind that Lewis is characterizing there is one that Tolkien probably actually himself got into. Uh, and I think Tyrion upon tuna is uh, an example. Tuna, I'm sure, is a, a very important word uh, in in the Elvish dialect, but. Um, yeah, less and lumbar. I agree is another one. It's it's hard to hard to take lumbar seriously as as a as a name as well. But again, I I, I would rather suspect that uh, Tolkien would have reacted with possibly even surprise. You know, had you asked him if you know like he was thinking of the lumbar region when he when he wrote that, and I, I don't think it would have crossed his mind because um, he wouldn't have been thinking in those terms at all. Okay, we shall now. Uh, uh, recess and uh at one o'clock we will at least i will return to uh talk about the next section in which we will definitely come back to uh we will spend most of the time in the next section talking about bad guys and what makes them bad and what happens to them and and all that okay in the next class we will be covering the next section of the quinta from the darkening of valinor through chapter 12 of men Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.